Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the American policymaker and policy entrepreneur, Michelle Flournoy. Michelle has had a distinguished career working on defence and foreign policy issues. She served in the Obama administration as the Undersecretary of Defence for Policy, which made her at the time the highest ranking woman in the history of the Pentagon. Michelle is now the head of West Exec, a geopolitical and strategic consulting firm based in Washington, D.C., and the chair of the Center for a New American Security. Thank you, Michelle Flournoy, for joining me on the director's chair. It's my pleasure. Good to be with you. Now, Michelle, there are a few interesting parallels between our lives. One of them is that we both come from film industry families. My dad was a film director and producer who worked on many Australian and British TV and film productions, including a famous Australian TV show called Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. And your dad, <laughs> I believe, was a cinematographer for Paramount who worked on TV shows like Here's Lucy and one of my personal favourites, The Odd Couple. Michelle, can you tell us a bit about your upbringing? What was it like growing up in LA, attending Beverly Hills High, growing up on film and TV sets? Well, I did not know about that, that we had that in common, but you you know how strange a world that can be. <laughs> growing up in Los Angeles with a parent who was in the film or TV industry was definitely interesting, interesting and different than life uh, in Washington and on the East Coast. My father loved the creative side. I think it was uh, a lot of fun to see his ideas become realities to, you know, occasionally show up on a Friday night to do my homework on the set, mm -hmm. watching him work and try to, to finish up a show. LA is a very much of a, a movie industry town. And what I found that once I got interested in international relations, I really felt like I needed to leave and mm -hmm. explore other places for university and then professionally to really explore my passion, which mm. was international affairs. So you went off to Harvard for your undergrad, and then you went on to complete graduate studies at Balliol College, Oxford, as did I, as it happens. It's always striking to me how many members of the American policy elite studied at Oxford. In this administration, for example, you have Pete Buttigieg and Jake Sullivan and our mutual friend, Kurt Campbell and Susan Rice and many others. Why is that do you think? And how did you enjoy Oxford? Well, I loved Oxford. I think many of my lifelong friends came from that two-year experience. And I think it gave me a valuable sort of non-American perspective on the world. Not that an American perspective is bad, but uh, you know, I had an advisor, a mentor in college, a professor named Michael Smith, who's now at UVA. But he was a young professor at Harvard, and he said, look, if you're really serious about international relations, given the U.S. role in the world, at some point, you need to get a perspective mm -hmm. on the U.S. from others who are not Americans. Mm -hmm. And the Oxford International Relations Program, as you know, is, is like a little mini United Nations. It's very international. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of my favorite moments was coming downstairs to breakfast in Hollywell Manor, which mm -hmm. is the graduate school. Mm -hmm. 
uh, dormitory the day after President Reagan invaded Grenada. And I had this whole, you know, delegation of people from probably 20 different countries lying in wait to intersect the American at breakfast to say, what are you people doing? And why does why did the United States just invade this country? So it was a great experience, sort of having a much broader sense of the world from a whole lot of different perspectives and not just the U.S. perspective, which was very educational. You went back to the United States, back into the world of policy and research and so on. In 1993, you joined the Clinton administration, where you served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy. And of course, this was at what Charles Krauthammer called the unipolar moment at the end of the Cold War. Many of America's adversaries had fallen away, but to some extent, the shackles hadn't yet completely fallen off America's uh, wrists as they did perhaps under the Bush administration. But certainly, I recall that time and it felt like Washington had a real opportunity to shape events for the first time for many decades. As a young policymaker, what was it like working in government during the unipolar moment? It was an exciting time because it felt like ideas really mattered. So, for example, some of the early projects I worked on was, you know, actually before I came into government was the sort of precursor to the non-Luger program, the whole mm. cooperative threat reduction program. This was wrestling with how do we make sure that only one nuclear weapon state emerges from the Soviet Union mm. as it disintegrates? Mm. How do we police up all of the nuclear weapons and materials from Ukraine and Belarus and Kazakhstan and, mm. and just have one nuclear power emerge? That was a very exciting and challenging time. One of the first projects the strategy office uh, worked on was the whole question of the expansion of NATO. Should mm. we expand? Should we not expand? What are the criteria for enlarging NATO? You know, what criteria do countries have to meet to in mm. order to be let in? And that became very much a part of particularly Secretary Perry's agenda. And yet we were also dealing with failing states, mm. humanitarian intervention, thing, places like Somalia, and then Bosnia. Haiti and trying to figure out how does the United States, when should we do that? How do we do it effectively? How do we get unity of effort across a whole of government approach? So there was a lot of policy generation, a mm. lot of ideas mm. uh, development in, in that time because it was, was just a very new context mm. from the one that had defined policy for decades. Mm. And many of those conflicts were, were deadly the issues were difficult, but I suppose when we look back on it now in an era of really accelerating great power competition, it does feel that maybe Washington had an opportunity to do more at that time than it did. Do you think that's a fair criticism? When you look back at the I Clinton do. administration, do you think that it, it realized all its potential? I don't think every, any administration ever realizes mm -hmm. all its potential, but we did manage to get only one nuclear inheritor from mm -hmm. the Soviet Union, Russia. And we did manage to clean up a lot of core cooperatively with Russia to clean up a lot of the nuclear legacy of the Cold War. We did secure a Europe whole, free and at peace mm -hmm. uh, over that decade. I, I think where we struggled more was trying to create you know, a, a, a sort of single frame for what our national security strategy should be. There was no obvious bumper sticker replacement to containment. We tried, you know, engagement and enlargement. Mm -hmm. That was sort of a watch for trying to build the community of free market democracies. That didn't last very long. But I think the real struggle was just the diffusion 
of challenges Mm -hmm. and how to address those alongside our allies when you have actually less than vital interests at stake Mm -hmm. in many cases. During the Bush administration, you went back into the think tank world at, at CSIS. And I'd like to ask you about President Bush's most consequential foreign policy decision, the decision to invade Iraq. I know there's been a lot of soul searching ever since. And I, I want to ask you, why do you think most of, or so much of the, the foreign policy establishment on both sides of politics supported that war? Why was there so much bipartisan agreement at the beginning on a decision that turned out to be so flawed? I think at the beginning, there was a lot of consensus based on the presentation of the intelligence, which was presented as if we had high certainty, high confidence, mm-hmm. and you know, in a high consequence situation, which was the judgment that Saddam Hussein had restarted his WMD programs. That turned out not to be the case. But at the time, that was what the administration was presenting. That's what the intelligence community was backing them up on. And I think a lot of people on the Hill, including many prominent Democrats, felt if that's really the case, we've got to enforce UN sanctions and and so forth, and we've got to go in. I think, you know, there's a lot that's become, you know, I, I personally wasn't in a position where I had to weigh in on the war. But at the time, you know, my concern was that we seemed to be focused just on taking down the regime and not on the much more challenging and consequential set of issues that would come later in terms of reestablishing stability, post-conflict reconstruction, mm. and, and what ultimately became a very you know, violent insurgency. Mm. And you know, through that decade of Somalia, Haiti, Bosnia, all of that, that's really what some of my lessons learned were around, mm. is that it may seem easy to get in mm. and, and to, to, to deal with an initial mission, but you own it once you're in it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and the back end, re, you know, nation building, mm. building up a regime that uh, you can leave in place that's functional, that safeguards your interests, that is the hard part. And of course, we've learned that again and again and again, certainly in Iraq and certainly uh, in Afghanistan as well. Michelle, in 2007, you co-founded the Center for a New American Security, a new think tank in Washington, and your, your co founder and co-conspirator was Kurt Campbell, a fellow guest on the director's chair who's now President Biden's Asia Tsar. You now chair CNAS. It's a very successful institution. It's produced many brilliant scholars. And even just this week, I see that Eli Ratner, who was a director of studies at CNAS until recently, has been nominated for a senior position at the Pentagon. At the time when you and Kurt decided to, to establish CNAS, what did you think was missing in the foreign policy debate? And how, how has CNAS filled it? I'll speak for myself. I felt that a couple of things were missing. One is that most think tanks to preserve their bipartisanship were incredibly careful about touching controversial issues. And I remember I wanted to write in a report uh, when I was at CSIS about whether you were for Iraq or against Iraq, how do we responsibly end this war? How do we protect our interests, uh, but end this? And I was told that, you know, this is untenable because you'll either offend all of the Republicans or all of the Democrats. It's impossible to do this. And I felt at the time, you know, this is the most consequential issue we're mm. dealing with. And, and, and how can it be too controversial to touch? This is what think tanks are supposed to do. So there's got to be a way to create a safe space where you can bring people who are passionate about the issues, but they check their partisanship at the door 
Um, you create an environment where they can duke it out intellectually and we can go, you know, go to the pain, as I used to say, go to the mm. really tough issues. The second thing is I felt that a lot of think tanks treated younger people uh, more as just sort of support to the senior staff. Mm. And I thought there was an opportunity to create a think tank that focused on people as the product as much as, you know, policy reports and recommendations. And so we started CNAS with some rules that were unheard of at the time, which is A, if you're a young researcher and you help on a report, you're going to get authorship or mm -hmm. co-authorship. We are going to actually invest in your professional development with mentorship programs and training programs and mm. development experiences and so forth. And over the years, I would venture to say that CNAS's impact has been as much from the people it has developed and trained and launched into public service as it has been from the ideas that we've generated. Mm. Well, let me ask you now about people development, if I can, because when Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, you returned to the Pentagon as his Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And this made you the third highest ranking official in the Pentagon, and at the time, the highest ranking woman in the history of the Defense Department, an organization that historically, of course, has always been dominated by men. What have been your experiences of the Pentagon and the US Armed Forces as a workplace and a workforce? And how, how do you think it's changed over time? And how have you tried to mentor and bring on new generations of women? So my first tour in the Pentagon in the Clinton administration, I had a number of strikes against me. I was young. I was female. I was a Democrat political appointee, and I was a civilian. So mm -hmm. a lot of strikes against me, <laughs> you know, and it was a, a sort of lonely place. I mean, I remember we had a women's leaders lunch and all eight of us had, did, had mm -hmm. lunch together at mm -hmm. one table. You fast forward almost 30 years mm -hmm. and you have a very different environment. We have a whole cadre of women leaders that we've had in previous administrations that are certainly coming into this one. And, you know, we've cultivated a talent pipeline that has qualified women at, on every slate at every level. And that's real progress. We have not had that kind of success yet with other types of diversity, particularly people of color. Um, and I think that's kind of the next area of focus. But I think when I first came in, it was a very male dominated culture, still is. And I think a lot of it was demonstrating why you're there by adding value mm. and being excellent and sort of not minding when you walk into yet another room and you're the only woman at the table or the only woman in the room, let it be other people's problems mm. and just focus on mm. you know, doing the work and getting it done. And what I found over time is that if you're good at what you're doing, uh, you have a boss that's supportive and empowering and you're making a difference you know, they, they forget about whether, you're, you know, what gender you are, mm -hmm. what, you know, your background is, mm -hmm. and they've, you know, you start, you've earned your place at the table. Mm -hmm. Maybe you had to work a little harder to get there, which is not right or fair, but, you know, you, you do that and, and then it stops mattering mm -hmm. in the same way. At least that was my experience. That's certainly not everybody's experience. There's much more work to be done in the Department of Defense to create an environment and a culture that is truly inclusive and welcoming of the talent, no matter what the package is. And that's true in terms of gender terms. It's also true in racial terms. The Department of Defense has tried lots of different approaches to dealing with sexual harassment and assault, but the problem is still there. And frankly, it's getting worse. So my hope is that this administration will finally really take that bull by the horns 
and make some more dramatic changes to go after that problem, as well as the issues of bias in racial terms that still persist in, in some pockets, not, not everywhere, but in some pockets that still need to be addressed. So more, more progress needs to be made. And my hope is that Secretary Austin will go after this with focus and enthusiasm. Let me ask you about the Obama administration. One criticism you hear often now of President Obama was that he was too credulous towards China, too keen to establish what they used to call a G2 or a sort of a meeting of the minds with Beijing and solve global issues, too willing to take Xi Jinping at his word, for example, on on Chinese military expansion in the South China Sea. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that America missed an opportunity to check Xi Jinping's China early? I don't think that's fair because I don't think the signs were what they are today at that point. I mean, China was still in the hide and bide mm-hmm. mode. They were still saying, oh, we're just a developing country. We're focusing on bringing our own population out of poverty. You know, we are growing our economy. That's where we're focused. You don't have to be worried about us. And it really wasn't until the latter part of Obama's second term that China started to sort of drop the veil and show itself to be a much more assertive power with real great power aspirations and much more willing, you know, greater willingness to take aggressive action. So given what we know now, yes, we could, should have seen it, but I, we didn't know what we know now. I mean, it, it, China's behavior, China was, was trying to hide the extent of its mm. ambitions at that time. And so I think once they started demonstrating their ambitions, I do think that the, there was a real shift of perspective that happened within the Obama administration in the second term. Michelle, after the election of President Trump, there were widespread reports that Trump's Defense Secretary Jim Mattis wanted you to serve as his Deputy Secretary of Defense. How seriously did you consider this offer and why did you ultimately choose to decline it? I only considered it because I have a very strong sense of duty and I come from a family where, you know, my father served in World War II, my husband served in the Navy for 26 years, mm-hmm. my eldest son is serving. I mean, we serve, you know, when you're called, you serve. Mm-hmm. So I thought about it seriously, even though I really had a hard time stomaching President Trump. Mm-hmm. I was not aligned with the Trump administration's policies going in, but I had a lot of respect for Jim Mattis. Mm-hmm. And I, and, you know, he was asking for help to try to kind of both protect the Pentagon and advance his policy goals, which I did agree with in many cases. Mm. But the moment where it really became clear this is not possible was Mattis is swearing in. Now, in the Hall of Heroes, President Trump shows up. And in addition to swearing uh, Jim into office, he decides to uh, surprise everyone by signing the Muslim ban. Mm. in the Hall of Heroes mm. in the Pentagon. And I that's the moment I like, okay, <laughs> I cannot be part of this. This is too horrible. Mm. So that didn't work out. <laughs> so the Trump administration is in the rear mirror now. Let's move on to the Biden administration. You worked closely with Joe Biden, of course, when he was vice president. What were your impressions then of his foreign policy and defense policy instincts? And in particular, his willingness to use force to advance American interests? I think, you know, actually, one of the things that was really extraordinary is President Obama gave Vice President Mm -hmm. Biden real leadership uh, responsibilities in Mm -hmm. foreign policy, you know, whether it was, you know, interacting with uh, his Russian counterparts, whether it was 
going to China and delivering tough messages, or whether it was really sort of shepherding a lot of our engagement with Iraq. And so, you know, he was a very dedicated and committed and deft negotiator. Uh, and it, he was showing, you know, the value of all of his years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was very small C conservative mm -hmm. on the use of force. And we particularly this came out and it's been talked about a great deal, you know, within the Afghanistan context where he really favored more of a narrow counterterrorism approach when I think most in the administration felt that a counterinsurgency approach was, mm -hmm. was needed. And so he, you know, the thing I admired about him it was he held his own and he was dogged in questioning others in pushing his perspective in, you know, examining the intelligence and in testing points of view. I do think that part of that was being the parent of someone mm. who was serving in the military and understanding the very real human costs mm. of sending Americans into harm's way. Mm. He had skin in the game, not just as the vice president, but as a parent mm. of, of someone who was serving in the military and, mm. and deploying to Iraq. So I have a lot of respect. We didn't always agree on policy issues. Uh, in, in some cases we did, in many cases we did, and some we didn't, but I had a lot of respect. There was a lot of speculation that you would be nominated as Joe Biden's Secretary of Defense. In the end, that didn't happen. But a lot of your close friends and colleagues have gone into the administration, including Tony Blinken, now the Secretary of State. What sort of start do you think the Biden team has got off to? I think they've gotten off to a great start because I think they really used the time in the transition to develop a sort of strategic framework and a set of clear priorities and policy objectives. Mm. And for example, I think one of the, the things that they are doing extremely well is starting with a focus here at home. Let's, we have to turn the corner on COVID. Mm -hmm. We have to get the economy moving back. That strengthening and shoring up our domestic foundations is what's going to allow us to be effective in a leadership role on the international stage again. But mm -hmm. we have to get our own house in order, if mm -hmm. you will, first. Second premise, allies. We have this unique strategic advantage of mm. all of these alliances that have been with us for decades and, and really critical partnerships. China doesn't have that. Russia doesn't have that. North Korea doesn't have that. Mm. Iran doesn't have that. We need to really re-engage our allies, show them love and appreciation. <laughs> which I think that was a bit lacking in some cases over the last four years, you know, really explore where can we identify interests that we share, values that we share, and where can we be more effective approaching certain challenges together mm. and take the time that's necessary to do those two things before rushing into, you know, uh, negotiations with China, for example. Mm. I think they've gotten off to a really great start. Mm. I think the biggest challenge that they're facing right now, too, on the personnel side, you know, it's a very slow confirmation process to get their team in place at the senior levels. And you had a prior administration that really decimated the workforce in several agencies, particularly the State Department, but also the civilian side of, of DOD as well. Mm. Probably the biggest international decision President Biden has made so far is on Afghanistan. You did a lot of work on the Afghanistan file, of course, during the Obama administration on the, the surge in 2009 on the counterinsurgency guide. President Biden has now announced that he will withdraw all US troops from Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. What do you think about that decision? 
Well, it didn't surprise me in that I think President Biden was determined to be the person who fully ended U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. But I wish that we had given it a bit more time, not forever. But, you know, we do have this we do have these negotiations going on. You know, the Trump administration sent former ambassador Zalkalazad to try to get Mm -hmm. to some kind of agreement. I don't think we ever the United States government ever fully backed him up with a whole of government approach using all of our leverage, not only with the Afghans and the Taliban, but also with the regional states to really try to drive to some sort of settlement. Mm. I would have loved to have seen that effort just to, I know it's unlikely, I know it would be really hard, but I would have felt better had we pulled out all the stops to try to get to some kind of negotiated solution mm. before setting a final withdrawal date. Because I, I really do see U.S. and NATO forces as the boy with the finger in the dike. And, you know, we will leave and we will leave successfully mm. and that will be the end of it for us. But, you know, I think it's the most likely scenario, whether it's in two months or two years, is a return of a very vicious and violent Afghan civil war and a lot of uh, people who help the United States and our allies uh, and a lot of causes that we care about, like the rights of women, mm. are going to be, you know, fall victim mm. to what happens. And it's going to be ugly, mm. very ugly. All right, let me finish with a few questions on our part of the world. First of all, the Quad. One of the interesting developments in March was that President Biden hosted the first leaders meeting of the Quad countries, United States, India, Japan, and Australia. How significant do you think the Quad's going to be in the next few years? I think the Quad has a lot of potential, and I was really pleased. I thought it was a great example of prioritization and signaling what's most important, our allies in Asia, starting there. It's a great signal to to start with that as kind of the first diplomatic move. You know, I think there's a lot of shared interests across the four. I think we have to be careful in that, you know, we we can't portray the Quad or try to make the Quad into an anti-China alliance. Mm -hmm. I think you'll have the defection of some of the members if we go in that direction. But I do think it can be very powerful in terms of whether it's, you know, improving the COVID response in the region or uh, shoring up our uh, deterrence efforts vis-a-vis China or any other aggressors in the region. So I think it has great potential and I'm glad to see the administration investing in it heavily. Recently, the temperature has been rising over the Taiwan Strait. Do you think that China will try to take Taiwan by force? And if it did, how would the United States respond? I hope that that is unlikely because uh, I think China has to understand that they would be starting a war to which the international community, including the United States, would respond. And, and you really don't want to provoke a conflict between two nuclear powers. I do think there are things we can do to shore up deterrence and help China understand that the U.S. is committed, that we have the capability to either deny them the objectives or impose very heavy costs that would should make them question whether it'd be worth it. The danger is miscalculation. Mm. They have really drunk the Kool-Aid on their own narrative about U.S. decline. Mm. If they really convinced themselves that we've withdrawn, we don't, we're not interested anymore, we don't have the capability, we're completely preoccupied, that could you know, lead to some dangerous miscalculation and, mm. and aggression. But you know, I, this is an area where I think, I hope the administration will be clarifying 
you know, our interests in the region and demonstrating our capabilities to try to mm. prevent that. Honestly, you know, with the 100th anniversary of the CCP coming up, you know, I think there's a lot that argues for Xi trying to maintain stability. I think the more likely mm. scenarios are trying to sort of absorb Taiwan into the Borg, you know, mm. absorb them <laughs> uh, economically, put a lot of coercive pressure on them as opposed to outright military intervention. Mm -hmm. One thing that Australia has felt in the last year is what it's like to be in China's sights. China's unhappy with various policy moves and statements by Australia on the international inquiry into the pandemic, on 5G, on foreign interference and, and various other issues. And we've been the target of various sanctions. How closely is Washington watching the Australian case? And what do Washington policymakers think about Australia, the way Australia's handled itself? And I think there's a lot of attention on what Australia is doing. I think Australia is seen as very courageous in Washington right now, and that you are standing up for your interests, you're standing up for your values, you're calling. I was going to use a baseball metaphor, but I probably shouldn't do that. Australia, you're calling the the balls and strikes as you see them. I mean, you're mm-hmm. you're you're being candid, you're being truthful, you're being clear. We need more of that, frankly, and it's it's uh, it's been inspiring for me to watch it. I don't. I, I I wish the Chinese were not trying to punish you so much or to push back on you so much, mm. but I do think so much of what we need to do to be successful as allies and as a broader community is call China out on their misbehaviors and call it as we see it. I mean, when we've been able to do that with our, not only you, but with our ASEAN friends, it's very powerful when a group of nations stand up and say, no, this isn't right. You're violating UNCLOS. You know, you're violating our norms of behavior. This is not right. Mm. Speaking of solidarity, I don't want to drag you into any trans-Tasman uh, disputes, but, but, <laughs> but this week there's a little bit of tension about different approaches that New Zealand has towards China as opposed to Australia. And in, in recent weeks and months, New Zealand ministers, for example, have advised Australia to be more respectful of China. And seeing, there's an emerging difference of opinion on the Five Eyes grouping, for example, and whether mm. that should simply be an intelligence alliance, which it has been for many decades, or whether it's appropriate that the Five Eyes grouping step out and make joint statements as they have in recent months. First of all, any, any thoughts on New Zealand's approach to China? And secondly, what do you think about the role of the Five Eyes extending beyond intelligence matters? New Zealand is an example of a smaller country that's under a lot of pressure and probably feels significant risk with making waves or you know, sort of provoking China. I think where we have common interests, where we can identify common positions through consultation, it's much more powerful for us to make those statements together. And frankly, beyond the five eyes, mm. you know, as, including as many others in the regions as, as possible, you know, back in the days when Kurt Campbell was showing up at ADMM plus, you know, mm-hmm. meetings and getting, you know, 24 signatories onto statements and, you know, maybe two abstentions. That was a very powerful, usually those signals that we sent to China as a community mm. uh, got so often had them, you know, step back a little bit and recalibrate mm. because they met with opposition. So I think China cares about the response. And so I think the more we can have a collective response, the better. And the Five Eyes? 
I mean, Five Eyes is invaluable as an intelligence cooperation mechanism and set of relationships. But honestly, I do think it goes beyond that. It, it's really a national security set of relationships more broadly. And again, I think as a basis for consultation, mm. trying to find common ground where we can mm. and then expressing that, I, mm. I think that's, mm. that's helpful. Michelle, for the last question, I want to remind you of an event that we did on Zoom in June last year with you and Kurt Campbell. It was quite a dark moment in American history. President Trump was flailing around in his efforts to be reelected. The COVID pandemic was raging across the United States. President Trump was conducting this somewhat militarized response in Washington to the Black Lives Matter protests. Things feel very different now. There's a new president in the White House. Uh, the new administration is rolling out the vaccine very successfully. Just this week, we had a guilty verdict in the George Floyd case. So how different do things feel in America? How optimistic are you about America's future now? Well, I, I do feel like we have adult leadership back in the White House, uh, which gives me confidence. But it goes beyond that. It's not just, it's certainly it, the change of administration has given me a lot of hope, but it's more than that. I really believe in American resilience. Mm. I mean, if we are, if you could say anything about us, but, you know, time after time in history, you know, from mm. Great Depression, World War II, Vietnam, times when people thought we were down and we weren't going to get up, we get up. <laughs> and not only do we get up, we get in there, we compete, we come back stronger. There's tremendous resilience mm. in just the American psyche and culture and so forth. And I think with the right presidential leadership to really call on Americans to, to do that, to recover, to build back better, to compete internationally, to you know, show up in the world in support of our interests and our values, I'm very confident we are going to come back uh, even stronger. Michelle Flournoy, thank you for telling us today about your very interesting life and about your journey from Hollywood to Oxford to Washington. You have a lot of friends here in Australia who look forward to seeing you back in high office in the near future. But in the meantime, Michelle Flournoy, thank you for speaking with me today, live from Washington, DC, on the director's chair. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be with you. Really enjoyed it. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.